Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, you get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash late night or not it's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode. Are you teaching right now or are you not? I am teaching right now. I teach on Mondays and Wednesdays if we want to get that granular about it. So you're catching me on the day where for the first half of the day, I think, ah, I don't have to teach today. How great. And then the second half of the day, I think, ah, I have to teach tomorrow. I have to figure out what I'm doing. So uh, there's like one moment of peace before it all goes. Anyway, yeah, I'm teaching two classes, all data science. One very beginning, one is our most advanced data science course. So Is it theoretical or is it very hands-on? Ah, so glad you asked because my students are asking the same. It's both. Yeah, so it's a mix. So the two courses I'm teaching, one is data science for everyone, which is students who've never programmed, never thought about anything related to math, really, except for when they had to in high school. Mm -hmm. And then the upper level course is the last course in our data science series for the undergraduate major at NYU. And happy to take curriculum questions. Uh, and it's advanced <laughs> topics. And so I'm teaching a unit on natural language processing. So it all is very applied in the sense that both the intro students and the advanced students do a lot of coding. I'm trying to get them all to learn how to do their own research and make sense of data and clean it and do it all themselves. But mm -hmm. it's also more theoretical than my students expect because they think they're going to come in and get like a Python coding boot right. camp. Right, right, right. But I make them think about things like the scientific method and hypotheses and there's a whole debate in data science about the death of theory, but those people are wrong, you know? And so even for natural language processing, there's a rich history in linguistics that was like way before we even had computers, humans thought, you know, hey, is there a logic or structure to language above and beyond just the words that we're all swimming in? Right. And so I try to hearken back to some of those. And I think all my students are like, right, but how do I install the package that will help me do this other thing? <laughs> anyway, okay. Yeah. Talk to me about the death of theory. <laughs> Anytime someone says theory, my ears perk up. So I want to hear all about the death of theory. Wow. No one has ever said a better sentence to me than talk to me about the death of theory. <laughs> and this is coming on the heels of the last time I was on this show, Brian, when you said, what was your emotional... Oh, right. Reality. Right? Reality grad, during grad, grad school. school. Yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah. oh, I thought no one would ever ask. It only took 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> the death of theory, right? I mean, I'm actually curious what you both think about this, too, is a lot of people when data science started being a whole thing, and in particular when the phrase big data was the word that we all bandied about, that sort of feels less cool now. 10 years ago, maybe? Yeah, which was its own problematic term, because how big is big enough? Right. for big data, no one knows. And the whole idea was that with machine learning and enough data to just churn through, we don't need to rely on theories, which in the scientific method, as you know, are humans sitting down and saying, I bet this thing causes this other thing. Right. Let's have a look at the data and then we'll see what the patterns are and see if that's consistent with my predictions. Everyone was like, actually, 
What if we just throw a whole bunch of data at the computer and let them tell us what's connected to what? Yes. Ta-da, we don't need theory anymore. And I say to that, maybe, you know, you're doing that, yes, but you're still starting with a theory even if you don't realize it because you've decided what data to feed into the machine Mm -hmm. and what machine learning algorithm to use and what you're going to make sense of. So there is a theory. Data mining has gone, I don't know about in your time, but data mining was a dirty word when I was in my early years of grad school. Oh, for sure. And by the end, it was like, you could get a degree in data mining, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I hear there are people who, even with physics, are like, let the computers figure out the laws. Yeah. Like, there's new laws of physics out there. Fucking great. Like, throw a bunch of data into a computer, see the computer says, that's theory, great, have fun. Yeah. First of all, there may be awesome discoveries in doing that, for sure. But if you're not also looking at bigger picture stuff, what are you even doing? Like, then you're losing the forest for the trees. Yeah, I like the way that you just described it. The way I think about it, at least the machine learning that I do and teach, and frankly, that we all interact with on social media algorithms, is very much like driving by looking only through the rear view mirror, uh-huh. right? And it's mm-hmm. you can learn a lot about what's going on in the world by staring at all of that, but you can't imagine other ways of looking at things and eventually you'll crash and die. Yeah, and I think what you said too is really interesting and important is there's, it's theory and human bias or bias in general, where the data set that you feed in, in many senses, I would imagine the format, you know, the size, the particulars of what exactly it is, you're already making a decision yes. there before you even start yes. coding anything. Yes. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I got to just play that in lecture. And literally, I should play that for my <laughs> intro students and my advanced <laughs> students who've taken five data science courses already because it's so easy to forget. So in the text as data, the natural language processing one, I'm about to bore them to death with what we call pre-processing text, which is exactly what you're describing. So there's numerical data that we can clean and organize and, mm-hmm. and code and do whatever we want. But if you're like trying to analyze a whole bunch of text and say, are inauguration speeches getting more complex or more biased or more whatever, right? You have to make some decisions that seem trivial, like, should I strip out all capitalizations? Should I only study the root of words? Do I care about past tense? Do I care about the order that the words are showing up in? All that kind of stuff is really trivial and easy. You can do it in like four lines of code. But there's some really interesting research coming out. One of my colleagues at NYU, Arthur Sperling, has a good one that says, your pre-processing choices are going to affect your outcomes in huge ways. So step aside end of theory. It requires a human to say, ah, let's cut the commas and see what happens, right? Because that can actually really influence what we think is happening with, in this case, presidential speech. Well, and it it seems pretty straightforward, maybe not to quantify, but at least to identify in the capitalization thing, take it out or don't, look at the answers, see what you get. Like, as the data sets get more and more complicated, this becomes harder and harder, I would imagine. But for simple stuff, I would imagine you can still see a big difference, at least some of the time, for what seem like trivial choices. Yes, and a lot of times what you'll do, as long as it's not unwieldy, back to big data, right? If you have n-dimensional... Oh, you just said my favorite word. (laughs) N-dimensional? Yeah. Nice. Well, to use one of my favorite phrases, I was going to say, we like to sweep the parameter space, right? And see what the results are from trying different iterations or specifications or whatever of the variables that you're using. Mm -hmm. These are all phrases that I think should just be used in everyday life and are not. So thank you for (laughs) letting us say them out loud. (laughs) What is a dimension to you? Oh. Yes. What does dimension mean to you? <laughs> a dimension, I mean, it is a dimension. So like one dimensional, two dimensional, three dimensional, four, yeah, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. In data science, it's, a, it's an aspect or a feature or an attribute or even a variable. So if you've done statistics and you work with, you know, X1, X2, X3, whatever, 
a lot of machine learning algorithms are taking those variables and as opposed to sort of fitting a line, you're treating them like vectors in dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And it can be three-dimensional, four-dimensional. So really a dimension is just an aspect. Yeah. I'll also use it colloquially. You know, I give talks at companies about data science and diversity because everyone wants to solve you know, racism with numbers. And it's like, good luck, right? <laughs> That's my punchline. I was like, yeah, you can't, not really. I got to think. I mean, it's helpful. But one of the things I'll say there is you have to think about what dimensions of diversity you care about, right? And in that right. case, dimension still means attributes or aspects or something, but I don't mean it quite in the same. Is that consistent with your view of dimensions? Well, sort of. It's funny. I was just talking about this. When was I talking about vectors, Layden? <laughs> this was completely what I was about to bring up. So yeah, this might have been like two episodes ago. Yeah, it was ago. the 101 episode. So I was just talking about how, for me, a big paradigm shift in how I thought of a word was the word vector, where in Ooh. high school, you're taught, you know, it's an arrow, it points in a direction, yeah. right? And then along with that, you're taught it's a multi-component thing. Yep. Or maybe you think of it as a one by N matrix, right? Mm -hmm. But it is crucially important in general relativity that that is not true. What is true is that a vector, yes, it is that, but it also is an object that transforms in a specific way under coordinate transformations. Because the whole Mm. point of general relativity, in fact, the whole point of a lot of physics is that physics should be the same in all inertial, non-accelerated reference frames. Mm. And your results should all not depend on what frame you're looking in. And so Mm. you're constantly asking, okay, if I start with some basic object, which in physics is usually called the Lagrangian, and then I switch coordinates, okay, maybe my description of how fast things are moving and where they are and all that stuff changes, but the basic idea is the same. Like you're Mm. moving away at half the speed of light at, you know, some weird angle and I'm stationary relative to me, but we're seeing the same thing. So a vector, when you write down vectors, which are very important in physics because they describe, you know, speed, sorry, sorry, velocity. Oh, I almost made a big mistake there. <laughs> I am going to leave this podcast. It's over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that offended my people. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> they describe like, you know, displacement of Austin, all this stuff. You have to be careful about what you're saying because it's not just a list of numbers. That thing also has to transform in a particular way. So a, a position huh. vector does just kind of by itself. But there are more interesting things like... People talk a lot about, you know, electric and magnetic field vectors, which there are pseudo vectors, which pick up a minus sign under parity shifts and stuff. Like you have to be specific about what the thing you're looking at is and how it transforms. Mm. And so I think it's interesting. Vector specifically, when I learned this, I was probably in maybe like junior or senior of college or something. I was like, what? Yeah. It's not just a list of numbers. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Or a line, like an arrow, basically. Or an arrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So say the part about that you can transform it and it stays the same, because <laughs> I don't know this one. Let's take the easiest example, which is a, a two-dimensional yep. vector. Okay, so it's a vector in the plane. It points in some direction. So now take your coordinate system and turn it, whatever, 45 yep. degrees. Your vector was pointing, let's say, 45 degrees you know, away from choose your axis. You turn the coordinate system 45 degrees. Now it's pointing along an axis. Mm -hmm. So your numbers in one coordinate system are going to be different. Mm. You were maybe like a half comma a half before, and now you're, I'm not normalizing, but you know, one comma zero or whatever. So the vector itself doesn't stay the same, but if I had done it right, the length, for example, of the Mm. vector would be staying the same. So there's an invariant, which is to say the length of the vector, which is the same in all 
coordinate frames. Now, the thing I just said about a half, a half, one, zero, the lengths are not the same there. Right. But I really should have said, you know, one comma zero and then one over root two comma one over root two or something like that. Right. And in relativity, it's not just, if you're just in 3D space, it's square root x squared plus y squared plus z squared, right? In relativity, the invariant interval, you have to have time in there too. So it's more like x squared plus y squared plus z squared minus time squared, or really the speed of light times time all squared. So there's a different invariant interval in general relativity, which is the thing that's constant, the thing that any independent observer would agree on. Stop me if you don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about this, but I have a follow-up question, which is, it sounds (laughs) to me like that's a property of a vector as opposed to what a vector is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. Which I didn't know. But it's sort of like a linear transformation, but not linear, and but it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, what I'm talking about is a linear transformation. Okay. So okay. what you want to do is you want to have an object that transforms well under linear transformations. Mm. And just any list of numbers or specific quantity you write down may not do that. Mm. Right? So that's the point. Got it. So any old list of numbers won't get you there. That's right. Ooh, I like that. Okay. One of the most common ways of turning text data into numeric data that computers can do things with is transforming it into what's called a document term matrix, Mm -hmm. which is basically creating a whole bunch of vectors for every document that you're analyzing. So if I'm studying a whole bunch of tweets, every tweet or every speech or every article or whatever, Mm -hmm. and then you take every word that appears and you populate it with a number to represent how many times that word shows up Mm -hmm. in that document. Mm And what you've done is created a whole bunch of vectors for each document that are out there in space. And then you can evaluate how similar or different they are based on the distance between them. And the axis are the words. Basically, each word is a component of that vector. Yes. You know, we do the same thing. We do uh, a document that says New York versus San Francisco versus New Mexico. Which would be like one, one. Yeah. Zero, 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 and then zero, zero, one, one, zero, zero, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then you can calculate, you know, what's the cosine similarity between these and what's the most similar document and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But for actual documents, you're in N-dimensional space very quickly. Yeah. The interesting difference seems like in what you do, there's no obvious notion, at least, of an invariant as there would be for what I do. And indeed, the notion of dimension, like when I think of a dimension, I typically think of a physical dimension, although... Mm. Not always, because we do talk about, you know, phase space and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I'm typically talking about a coordinate dimension in some kind of geometrical setting. Yeah. So wait, what does n-dimensional mean? N-dimensional means having n-dimensions, where n is an unspecified number. So you're saying like the letter n-dimensional. Okay, great. As opposed to like n-dimensional or something. Okay, thank you. That does yes. not translate well over an audio <laughs> yeah. <laughs> medium. Yeah. I like out-dimensional myself, but, you know, that's just me. A lot of times in various math things, if you have an integer and you don't know what it is, you'll call it n uh, as opposed to x, which is just some whatever. Yeah. You know, just some rando thing. So often an unknown integer is n and m. So you might say, I have an n by m matrix. Yeah. Or something like that. So I know that this is not the case because we'll say things like small n, but Brian, do you think of a large number when someone says n? I tend to. Yeah, I mean, if you just give me an n, I'm probably thinking like less than 10. Oh, a small number. Yeah, typically. Oh. It could be anything, but 
the phrase large N, like large N has a very common meaning in particle physics, which people say all the time. What does it mean in particle physics? So in QCD, quantum chromodynamics, the study of quarks and gluons, there are three colors of quarks. All right. Not imaginary, but not real space vector, yes, which is a three-dimensional thing, which indicates the colors of the quarks. And then you can transform various things in what are typically called SU3 rotations, which are essentially uh, length-preserving rotations in a three-complex dimensional space. Okay. So in physics, we call these gauge transformations because it's not like really rotating a system in the real world. It's like this kind of secret symmetry that you don't mm. get to see, but controls the physics. I feel like I've heard that word before. I couldn't have told you what it meant, but I feel like I've heard it. It's a big, big idea. One of the biggest ideas actually in theoretical physics and particle physics, and it is central to our understanding of the universe. So if you specify the gauge group, in this case, SU3, which is the thing that is doing the transformations and how things are transforming, you get a lot of physics just from that. So in studying extensions of this, people might talk rather than three colors, they might talk about N colors, SUN mm. transformations. SU, by the way, here stands for special unitary, which means something. And then interesting things happen when you go to large N, mm. like very, very large numbers for N, for SUN. And a lot of what we understand for solving problems exactly happens in this limit where N is very, very large. Mm -hmm. Because okay. as things get larger, you go to infinity, right. sometimes problems get simpler. Like as you approach the limit or as you approach infinity or as you approach whatever, yep. things get weird. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes people say, you know, if they're an N-dimensional system, let's take the case of large N, so we're going to, you know, arbitrarily large dimension. Right. And that, they literally mean spatial dimensions often. Right, right, right. But, Leighton, is any of this landing? Cool. I'm trying. I'm trying. Listeners at home, I have a terrible sinus headache right now. So I'm a little quiet because the snot is falling out of my head like a faucet. <laughs> right. But this is fascinating. In N dimensions. Yeah. Yes. Where N stands for nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to hear about natural language processing, is it? Yes. Please go off. I would really like to hear about this. And I know you two share an affinity for linguistics. So. Oh, yes. Please. Ah. Yes. Brian, I don't know if we've talked about our linguistics affinity very much, but Leighton, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea here, so there's sort of two broad categories of natural language processing or NLP. And one is like, and this is probably an oversimplification, send the hate mail my way, whatever. Uh, one <laughs> is, can we teach computers sort of Turing test style, teach computers to quote, understand and respond to language in a way that sounds like a human. So anytime you're interacting with a chatbot, GPT-3, you know, generative language stuff, things like that, mm -hmm. right? Setting aside what actual understanding would be, can we make computers talk, right? And then the other side, which is the side that I'm on in my social science background, is saying, can we take text that's out there in the world and turn it into data that we can do cool things with? And used to be, that meant doing things like counting up words or saying, how many times did they elicit the idea of violence? And we had to hire humans to do that. And that's obviously very inefficient and was rather exploitative for a while. But now we said, oh, look, we can do things like this document term matrix and turn all these wonderful speeches and plays and poetry and whatever else into huge matrices and see what's going on with them from there. And some of the more interesting work that's going on right now is an area called topic modeling. 
you know, Microsoft Word offers to summarize your document and does a horrible job, of right? Course. That kind of thing. Horrible. Oh, what a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Topic modeling is sort of like, you know, I have a body of articles that's way too many for me to read that are all from CNN, Fox News, New York Times, whatever. And we want to say, what are these outlets talking about over the last 10 years? And we could do topic modeling where we basically have an algorithm. My colleague, Sarah Sugars, calls it fancy counting, which I think is exactly what it is, and <laughs> says, what are the big topics that each outlet, in this case, are talking about? What are the Republican senators tweeting about versus the Democratic senators? Mm-hmm. And so on. And so it's sort of saying, you know, there's this whole body of what we call unstructured data out there in the form of words that we say. How can we use those to do things like either observe, you know, we think of it maybe as a latent variable of underlying things like beliefs or values or preferences. Like it's sort of like an interesting way to observe what goes on in human heads. And so we can kind of better understand people's political behaviors and we can do things like predict events, you know, like could we have predicted, why didn't we predict, did we predict January 6th based on online activity? A lot of the the text as data side of natural language processing is involved in that, like turning all the crap we say into creepy or potentially useful predictions. (laughs) So I'm on that side, but there's a ton of interesting NLP work that literally does things like make chatbots better. And I've been on the receiving end of those, as I'm sure we all have as a consumer, where you're texting with someone and you're like, is this a robot or not? You're like, I think Alan Turing would be interested in this, you know? (laughs) This might be more relevant to my age range than yours, but did you ever play with Eliza? Yes! Oh, I didn't. But I teach about Eliza, and we literally, I I talk to her before every semester to kind of see how she's doing. Mm -hmm. And I had my students play, like, one played the role of me and one played the role of Eliza. And so we we talk about Eliza at length. Do you want to say what Eliza is for the few listeners out there who probably haven't (laughs) (laughs) been paying attention to Eliza? Leighton, do you know what, or should I say who, Eliza is? That name in this context Sounds really familiar, but please explain. So it was a chatbot, maybe the first, I don't know about actual first, but way early. I'm going to say from the mid 80s, maybe is that late 70s. I literally have a PowerPoint slide that I'm not going to make you look at, but I'm going to check because I, <laughs> I lectured on this two days ago. But you're right. It was the first, like, I think this is what I said in class, the first public facing chatbot, basically. Like, people had been kind of tweaking and messing with stuff, but it was the first time that someone could just log in, some random non-linguist could log in and interact with this thing. Yes. And I remember having it on my my Macintosh SE in the early 90s. Nice. At which point, it was already pretty old. So if I had to guess, it would be like mid-80s. And you could just talk to it, and it would ask, how are you feeling? I think it had like a psychological mm-hmm. bent to it. They didn't use the word AI then, but your computer psychologist or something like that. And it would try to sort of Freudianly talk to you. Is, yes. Does that sound about right? Yes. And I've checked my slides and it was invented in 1964. <laughs> 64. Oh, 64. wow. I was way Shit. off. It stands for something. I don't have what it stands for in front of me, but it's a typewritten comment response program designed to imitate a psychiatrist using reflection techniques. All it does is the rules are just to rearrange sentences that you've given it and it kind of resets it back to you, which you can see why you would start with that kind of psychiatry technique, right? Of like, how does that make you feel? Would you say that's something that's important to you? Like that kind yeah. of stuff. You sound like yeah. you don't like traffic very much. Yeah, you know? it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like it's your mother's fault. And you're like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So there's very simple grammar. I did a little interaction with it recently about the pandemic, and it went nowhere. <laughs> you can interact with Eliza online right now. It's it's really fun. I think. Is it the original code? You know, I'm curious how much they've updated it. That I don't know. 
This one, I talked to her for like, see, I'm saying her, maybe 20 lines. We each said 10 lines. She starts with, I think every time, please tell me what's bothering you. And in this case, I said, the pandemic won't end. And then she said, do you feel strongly about discussing such things? And I said, yes. And we kind of bantered back and forth. And then she got locked again. And she would say, do you feel strongly about discussing such things? And I was like, yes, I still do. And she would say, do you feel strongly? And you're like, oh my God. Like, so she kind of, I'm assuming it's the same code because it's terrible. But- But, well, the other thing that's so interesting that maybe you talk about in class is what a low fucking threshold we have for being like, yeah, that feels like a person. Yeah. Right. (laughs) While at the same time also noting "Eh, something's a little wrong about this. Maybe it's a stupid person. I don't know. Yes. You know, but it's like some basic level of human speech seems pretty easy to get to. Yeah. There's a low bar to clear. Does that, do you agree with that? Yeah. In October 1950, in the Mind Quarterly Review is when Alan Turing first introduced his Turing test. Mm -hmm. And basically he begins with exactly that. He says, everyone wants to know if machines can think. In order to say whether or not machines can think, we have to define machine and we have to define think. And he goes on to say think is sound like it's thinking. Imitate a human. And that's the Mm -hmm. whole test, right? And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, we've on the one hand long since surpassed that because Twitter bots everything, right? But on the other hand, I talked to Siri the other day just to test it. And I said, I don't think you would pass the Turing test. And Siri autocorrected it to Turing test and gave like a (laughs) nonsensical answer. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know. So it's both a really, really low bar. And also we're not as far along as we think. I think it's interesting you called Eliza her, but Siri, the much more advanced thing, it. Did I? Just by reflex. Yeah. Maybe Siri's non-binary. I mean, I don't want to. (laughs) Eliza. (laughs) Well, but yeah. Because I agree with you. I, I use it when I talk to Siri, ask it a question. But I think a lot of people would use, you know, some kind of human pronoun yeah. to refer to it. So I don't know what's going on with my parents, but my mother changed Siri's voice. <laughs> my parents use Siri a lot. I don't use Siri at all. No, I hate it. It's pointless. I hate it. Yeah. Layton, are you a Siri person? God, no. I am an A-L-E-X-A person a little bit, oh. but... Mostly to tell her to turn my lights on. And I used her reflexively. Yeah. Turn my lights off. I use Siri for one thing, basically exclusively. Can you guess what it is? And here's my hint. I am not alone when I am using it. To play music? That's it. To annoy your daughter. No, to satisfy my daughter's endless craving for the Encanto soundtrack. Oh. I'll say, you know, Siri, can you play? We don't talk about Bruno. From the Encanto soundtrack on Spotify. Siri, okay. can you play the family Madrigal from the Encanto soundtrack? That's what I use it for, is when I'm driving specifically to play music for my kid. <laughs> is the Encanto soundtrack something I should get involved with? I've never heard of such a thing. Oh. Is it good? Or is this like a little kids are obsessed with it? Well, it's the latest Disney movie. It's good. It's solid. It is like all Disney soundtracks. Like kids get obsessed with it. Yeah, okay. It's like the new Frozen or whatever. Yeah, so this one's a Lin-Manuel Miranda thing. Right. And it has a few amazing songs on it. And like all things, some songs aren't quite as catchy. The movie, I was going to say, is worth seeing. I like the movie. Okay. But my daughter listens to it endlessly. And in fact, I just found out that one of the singles, we don't talk about Bruno, is I think the highest charting Disney song ever. It beat Let It Go in terms of chart position. 
Damn. So, yeah. Even I know, let it go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll see how far I can get as somebody who is not around children or Disney soundtracks by choice. How far I can get without having to hear this song. Yeah. I'm sure it's good. I think the songwriting in Frozen is, is great. It is very effective at doing what it needs to do. And the songs are really good. Which is make money. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, which is to latch hold of people's minds and not let go. We Don't Talk About Bruno is a far better song to listen to over and over and over oh, again. Okay. All right. The movie takes place in Colombia and a lot of the songs, you know, are kind of Latin influenced and are fun and interesting in that way. Okay. I so. think I know of the song because I read like a New York Times article about how Lin-Manuel Miranda came up with that song. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I think, the sort of thing that someone without children would be their way in to right. this sort of music. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I'm the times on the yeah. yeah. So that's what I use Siri for. That's what you use Siri for. Right. So my parents, I, I was with them for a couple weeks around the holidays, and they use Siri all the time. Oh, and so my mother changed Siri's voice into a British man, so it kind of has butler feel. Sir I. Yeah. And I think that my dad... <laughs> Thank you. Wait, what did you say? Sir I. If it's British. Oh, yes, yes. And then my dad, I, I don't know, as a tit-for-tat kind of move, changed his to an Australian woman. <laughs> and so they're all walking around the house saying, Siri, turn on the torch, and things like that, and then Siri will do it. <laughs> That's very <laughs> It's wild down there. I tried that briefly, but I got so sick of it not understanding what the fuck I was saying that I just gave up, because it doesn't yeah. know anything. Well, I think it might get better over time. That's also true, uh, yeah. And or maybe they haven't set their privacy to anything, and you have, or something like that. And so Siri's just mining <laughs> That's everything. That's a very good point. Yes, I have a lot of privacy stuff on. That could be one of the things. I mean, they're just not working with as much data. But all these things, I mean, you're, you're just training the algorithm to know your voice. Yeah. But I've been impressed when I see my parents do it, though. We'll be talking about like, what year was the whatever? And they'd say, hey, Siri, what year you know, did Eliza come out? And I was like, it would never occur to me. Mm -hmm. to say it to my phone. Yeah, I try to use it for occasionally is like, where's the closest gas station? Mm. A, a thing that I would think it would be able to like crush. Yeah. <laughs> and then it has no idea what I'm talking about wow. and like lists someplace in San Francisco, you know, wow. and I'm like, no, not closest to Apple headquarters. Like, yeah, closest to me, you know. That could be. Maybe your location settings are just off and yeah. just thinks you're in Cupertino. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> a friend told me a story once, I don't remember who it was, who's, they were from the, the area that Apple is in, so from like the Cupertino area, yeah, yeah. and her father got iPhones like we all do, and was so impressed that they had set the weather and all the other apps to his own local weather when he got it, and he assumed <laughs> that came preset for everybody, and it was like literally only you because Apple is there. That's really funny. It was very cute, I thought. He was like, what a nice touch. <laughs> So personalized. <laughs> it's the least night's touch. It's super involved. We'll have to go in and delete Cupertino from our phones because who cares? Yeah. 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 I think the only time I've ever encountered the phrase natural language processing was, are either of you familiar with a game that came out mid-tens that became kind of meme on Tumblr called Facade? No. Sounds vaguely familiar. Really, really janky looking, basically the whole bit. It's sort of like a stage play. A couple invites you over for dinner and then you have text input and they will react oh. based off of, I really don't know what the code behind it is, but I was thinking that maybe you might be familiar with it. And if not, you might want to check it out because okay. I feel like students of a certain age or people who are like 
my age might be familiar with it from back then because, you know, Hmm. YouTubers would mess with them. And they're pretty on point with responding to stuff. Like if you're explicitly rude, they can pick up on it. There is like some degree of nuance and like to get, quote unquote, them as the characters in the game to understand you, like your syntax and capitalization has to be really strong. Very strange. Very interesting. Facade. Yeah, no, that's not at all what I was thinking of. No. You might recognize if you look it up, just anybody who was on Tumblr in the 2010s, this was like a whole thing for a while. I lurked there briefly, but maybe on the wrong side of Tumblr. Yeah, same. Yeah, don't do that. Every side of Tumblr is the wrong side of Tumblr. (laughs) Tumblr was a weird one. At the time, it was like you had Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter were the big three. And everyone was on Mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter that I knew. And then I had a friend once who was like, oh, I spend all my time on Tumblr. That's all I'm doing is Tumblr. And I had no idea it was that big until she mentioned it. Same. And occasionally you'd see links to it. And I'd click into it. And I'd be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, because it's such a different layout than Facebook or whatever. And the thing that always confused me, what is it you can share only by reblogging on your own site and something like that? Is that right, Layden? Yeah, yeah. You have your page. You can reblog. They've changed a lot of things. So what I'm talking about is like 2012 to 2015 Tumblr probably. But yeah, you had to reblog. Interesting just little things that people would work around how shitty the website is where... Mm If you wanted to reblog without adding something to it, that if anybody wanted to reblog it, they'd have to reblog it, the post, and then also what you said. Right. If you want to sneakily comment on a thing, is you write in the tags. So instead of actually using the tags to, you know, tag items for easy finding, you can just be like, I think this is bullshit or whatever. And like one of the best parts of the site was just like, what's this person saying in the tags right now? Because some of them would be just like shit post jokes or mm. like, venting or something actually deep. And then there was sort of a culture of like people screenshotting someone's tags and tacking that onto a reblog. Mm. It really, I dunk on the idea of a quote tweet a lot, but Tumblr literally was just infinite quote tweets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By design, pretty much. Yes, that felt more collaborative because so many posts that took off were, you know, multiple interactions that you see on the same post. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It sort of makes me think of like a more viral version of Instagram stories where you see the reposting if you've been tagged, but that's a very specific way in on those. But you're sort of like, you see this kind of nested conversation, if I'm thinking about it correctly. Yeah. The Instagram stories thing, I'm curious what your all reactions are to this. It's so annoying when someone like shares it, but you catch it too late. And then it won't tell you what it was yeah. that was shared or you got mentioned in someone's story. Yeah, you have no idea what was And said. it's like, what the fuck was, yeah. like, I think it's insane that you can't see that after it happened. You get tagged, the notification shows up. Yeah. And then I don't check my notifications basically at all on Instagram, but you check every few weeks or whatever. And it's like, wait, there were five stories that talked about me somehow? Like, yeah. I'm kind of curious what they are. Yeah. No, I actually had someone message me the other day saying, oh, I don't check these very often. I saw you mentioned something. I have no idea what, but thanks, I guess. And so I sent him a screenshot of it and it was just reposting a joke that he posted, you know, nothing exciting. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's because the whole promise of it being 24 hours means that only you can see it after that. And so it makes sense. But you would think that you could get like at least a... I don't know. A little still. A a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Like that would be some natural language processing where it's like, this was complimentary or like they're trolling you or something like that. (laughs) What's up? 
the messaging I find, I know some people use Instagram messaging a lot. I have one friend who exclusively communicates with me through Instagram messages. Yeah. Bro, imagine being in your 20s. It's a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Please yeah. just text me. Well, yeah, just text me, right? Texting feels so formal now to me. Kind of, yeah. Like, I only text friends, so. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. What I was going to say is I tried to text this guy back some picture of something, and I ended up initiating a video call because I clicked the wrong icon because I'm not familiar with the environment. I was like, ah, no. Yeah. You know, I think he's asleep. You know, it's been many, many years since I have been dating, but I can't imagine just texting someone out of the blue. Yeah. You know, for like dating reasons or whatever. And I know people do it all the time, but that is not how I work. Yeah. So when I got COVID in December, the government called me and said, you know, we're doing the contact tracing, whatever, who have you been near? And one of the people I had been near was the person who cut my hair a few days prior. And they said, okay, what's this person's name and phone number? And I have known this person for 10, 12 years. She's been cutting my hair forever. We DM on Instagram all the time. We're on good terms. I go to her birthday parties, you know, whatever. I know her really well, but I don't know her last name because she just goes (laughs) by an initial. Yeah. And I don't know why she does that, but that's what it is. And I don't have her phone number because I've never called her. We'll talk on like Venmo or Instagram or whatever. (laughs) And so to this guy, I was like, I can give you her website and her Twitter or her Instagram handle. And he was like looking at this New York state, you know, form. And he was like, there's nowhere for me to input that information. So I was like, I guess we're not contact race. I mean, I had already messaged her and she was fine, but it's someone I know really well. And I didn't know either of those things about her. It feels so 10 years ago to be like, well, the only way I can get in touch with someone is their phone number. Yeah. It's like, no, come on. What are you doing? Well, I do a lot of recommendation letters for students and all these places, you know, for grad schools and whatever, all ask for my address and my phone number. And I I can see address to be like, are you really a professor? Sometimes I have to even put a link to my faculty bio or whatever, like whatever. I can see that. But then they want my phone number. It's like, are you really going to call me? and ask about how Susan's doing. You're not going to do that, right? Yeah. The recommendation letter is so interesting. I had to do, you know, back in my faculty days, I had to do my share of them. Yeah. Do you like doing them or are they, yeah. Does anyone? (laughs) It's just such a chore. The language more or less all sounds the same. I can't imagine, even when you read them, it's like you either read for really good or really bad and everything else just falls into the middle. Yep. It's such a challenge to do it. It's very costly and potentially informative, but you're right, often not informative. Mm. I mean, the better option just seems, and this also seems like the much more gatekeeper option, is to just call your friend yeah. and say, hey, how's this student? However, this is precisely how yeah. diversity issues don't get solved. So, yeah. yeah. If it were to happen, it will happen for faculty positions or maybe PhD admissions. I mean, you just can't do that for a master's program or something like that. I have very mixed feelings about it. So I'm also on the admissions committee for the master's program in data science at NYU. And so right now it's like grad school admissions season. So I'm currently spending all of my time writing letters of recommendation for students, some of whom I've never met. Part of that's pandemic. Part of that's I'm teaching a big class. And part of that's me being like, I'll write it. But all I can say is you're great. We never spoke. What do you want me to, you know, what am I going to say, right? I have office hours. If you want me to know you, yeah. show up at office hours. <laughs> yeah. And and show up at a time that isn't when you're asking for the recommendation letter, right. by the way. Though at yes. least that's something. But then at the same time, I'm also simultaneously reading letters of recommendation on the admission. So I have to read like 700 in the next oh 10 God. days or something like that. And you're absolutely right, Brian. You know, I go to the letters. The letters are weirdly 
really helpful because everyone has good grades, everyone has good scores. Like it's actually one of the few differentiators. That's right. And so we'll rely on those. And you're exactly right. You're basically just looking and you could almost do some natural language processing. You shouldn't, it's very problematic, but you could, where you want to say, is this very detailed and very good? If so, yes. Is this generic? If so, no. You'd almost never get a bad one, right? That's right. Because generally the person will say, I don't think I should write you yeah. a letter. Yeah. I, I've written one bad letter once. Yeah. And that's when I told the kid, I was like, look, I don't know you well and you didn't do well in my class. Yeah. Are you sure you want me to write one? And he was like, yes, go for it. Okay. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm going to be respectful, but. Yeah. Yikes. It's technically, you know, my job to do these things. So it's not like I can just say no, but I will do the exact same thing where I'll say like, this is what I'll say. And this is what else I'll say. And Here's what is probably going to be more useful to you. Because a lot of students, for me, they often want to go to some kind of quantitative business program or finance analytics or blah, blah, blah. And because I taught them data science, they say, well, they need a letter from their data science professor. And it's like, you need a letter from someone who knows you well. It really doesn't matter what field it was. But the students have the wrong information about what a good letter looks like. And so the whole search is just weird and off. And the other creepy thing, Brian, I don't know if you remember this or... Leighton, if you've gone through these sorts of processes much, but I think the questions are getting creepier. So writing a letter is a pain. <laughs> I don't mind filling out the forms and submit, because there's always like a form and then you upload your PDF. Yep, and yep, once yep. you write the letter, it's pretty trivial to submit for most schools. Some schools are really annoying. Oh my God. Some school, it's like, guys, yeah. make this easy on us. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, they purposely are like, what are some specific weaknesses you've observed in this person? And everything has its own box. You, you can't have to paste put it, it in. in. You can't paste oh, it in. It's like, God. fuck you. Yeah. Why do you think they would specifically be good in this program? Oh you know, my what God. is your primary reservation? But then they also try to quantify it because they're trying to turn it into data and blah, blah, blah. And it's really a huge mess. And so they'll say like, you know, rate this person on a scale of one to five compared to other graduates you've observed or other students who've gone on to grad school. You pick yep. the thing. And they start off with like, you know, intellectual ability, capability for original research. But then now they're getting so creepy. They're like self-confidence, emotional maturity, hmm. presence. Ooh. What's presence? What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. That to me reads like a bunch of white guys being like, that guy's got presence. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's like, come on. It feels coded, right? Yeah. It's, it feels very yeah, coded. Yeah. yeah. And it used to just be good old fashioned, like works well with others. But now it's like advocates for themselves or something. By the way, I'm sure are not anywhere close to being indicators of success, no matter right. how you rate on those. Right. right? right. Or, or at yeah. least uh, that would be my guess. These are college students. It's like college students are are young relative to a lot of adults, but they are adults and we're in a formal setting. How on earth am I able to comment on their emotional maturity, right? Yeah, The only yeah. way that I would have anything to say about their emotional maturity would be if they were really excited or really sad in office hours, which is not quite like therapist privileged information, but it's like, what? I could comment on this. My favorite one actually was they wanted me to comment on someone's ethics. <laughs> And I was like, what? Yeah, I'm writing a recommendation letter for someone who got an A, but they're very unethical. Like, of course, <laughs> like, like some of these yeah. are like, if the boxes weren't ticked, we wouldn't be here. And that's something that I just ignore on the receiving end, you know, of these things. Oh, as you get older and more senior, you put up with a lot less bullshit. Yeah. And I definitely knew a share of like old famous professors who were like, 
I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm emailing them my letter. Yep. They can deal with it. Yep. Which, you know, when you're young, you're like, oh God, but what, it's not the format. What if they, you know, what? Right. On the other hand, I'm sure that was totally fine. And yeah. they were like, oh, we got a letter from Professor So-and-so. That's great. Yeah. You know, end of story. And then they put it in a file and so be it. Yeah. And the coding in the letters is, from the ones I've read, it's like, you're just looking for a few key words. It's like, you kind of look for how long it is, but that's a pretty noisy signal. But mostly at the beginning and end, you will look for, <laughs> A, that they use the same name and pronouns consistently. <laughs> so you haven't just copied and pasted. That's a big yeah, yeah, issue. Yeah. But B, <laughs> it's that sentence of, you know, I recommend them highly and without reservation, or I recommend them, or I'm happy to recommend them, or I'm sure they'd be fine. It's like, it's all positive, but it's how enthusiastic you are. And that's the signal, basically. Yeah, that's right. Which is, you feel like you just want that sentence yeah. at the end of the day. <laughs> That'd be an interesting thing to do is cut out everything but that last paragraph yeah. sentence, whatever, Yeah, and then see what happens. But yeah, it's such a slog. I went through such a minimal version of it in the mm. UK we were picking three PhD students out of a pool of one to 200 or something like that. And there was a lot of filtration that happened even to get to that point. Mm. No, it was 700 letters. Jesus Christ. Well, that's just round one. We got 2,000 applicants total. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. For about 400 spots, I think. Do they need to take standardized tests at all? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I was on a committee meeting this morning where we're trying to decide if we should require that going forward. So... Up until this round, GREs were required. General. This year, the ones I'm about to review, they did something like optional but recommended. And our conversation in this meeting today was like, well, that means a million things to a million people. And that means not optional to me. It's not optional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then how do we know that we're interpreting it if there's a lack of one, et cetera? And part of that was pandemic related stuff. The other part was totally like peer institutions stopped requiring it. So, from a competitiveness right. of That's recruitment. Right. You have to stop requiring it. But then we were thinking about, well, how much information is in there? Do we use it to evaluate candidates? So it's an open question. Basically, our conclusion was we need to do more research before we decide. Which GRE or GREs did you take yourself? I took whatever the regular GRE The was. general. Yeah. Did you do more specialized? Oh, yes. <laughs> I took general. I took math. I took physics twice. And I took music. Ooh. Oh, wow. Jesus. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't even know there was a music GRE. There is, or at least there used to be, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and you have to right. take them pretty early, right? So I took math and music and then physics and did well on all of them except physics, the thing I went to grad school in. <laughs> and then I took it again because I was planning to transfer a few years into grad school and then end up not doing that. So I took the general and then a bunch of subject-specific ones. I'm going to cross-post this on my own podcast because <laughs> that's awesome. What exactly is a GRE? It's the standardized test for grad school. It's the SAT equivalent for grad schools. Got it. It sucks. That's my official take. <laughs> There's a general, which is very much like an SAT. In fact, it's kind of the same. It's insultingly similar. Yes. <laughs> it's as if you took a week of college mm -hmm. and then took basically the same test. They're slightly different, and I don't even know what the fucking current format is, but I can tell you it's dumb and doesn't reflect intelligence in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Literally, it's like, okay, now you've done four years of college. Do you still remember the area of a triangle? You're like, yeah. Mm -hmm, yes, I do. 
<laughs> pretty much. Woof. There's a verbal section. There's a math section. I don't think in general there's an essay section, but I could be wrong. There was for me. I did an essay. Maybe I did too. Fuck. I can't even remember. But the essay was great because I think they've since gotten rid of it because you can 100% game the system. Yeah, you just Not to brag, it. but I crushed the essay <laughs> section because I read a book that said GRE essay section for dummy or whatever, right? Yeah. And basically, as long as you have an opening paragraph and then you have, and my reasons are as follows, one, two, three, and then furthermore, and you conclude and you put the word specious somewhere in there. <laughs> You're right. Basically, you say, like, because you have to respond to some text. So you say the author makes a compelling argument. However, upon closer look, the argument is specious. And then you just list out why. And literally, it's like some old person in Wyoming who reads these things and just says, well, did they say the keywords? And you get a six or whatever the score was. It's so formulaic. Yeah, it's complete bullshit. Eliza could have written it. Yes, yeah. truly. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very famously rewards test prep, mm -hmm. which is socioeconomically, you know, favors rich people. There's a racial bias. It's mm -hmm. just a huge problematic thing. Well, so here's where we got hung up. And so I'll be grateful if you can resolve this for us. Basically, you know, <laughs> going into this conversation today, the thinking is it seems discriminatory, unhelpful, you know, high cost for students. Yep. Because it's like a hundred plus bucks to take yeah. the thing or something. Yeah. And it's stressful and it's time and it's whatever. And so the argument is seemed pretty obvious going into the conversation for me that we should ditch them. And I'm snagged on it slightly only because of this, because someone pointed out that and this is what we're going to be researching, that it could help a student who comes from a school you don't know about mm -hmm. or has letters from people who you don't recognize or has horrible grades, you know, whatever, stand out otherwise. So you had like a lot of stuff went wrong in your life or you didn't have the prestige, privilege, blah, 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 that got you to the sort of other signals. This is one way to demonstrate your skills. But I was like, is that enough? And is that true? We don't know. Mm. That's exactly the question is... If everything else in the application is not up to snuff, but they got a perfect score on the GRE, right. it's probably not a candidate you want anyway, right? Right. So I, I agree with that. You know, if you're just filtering, if your right. zero level filter is they got above X score, right. then sure, someone might pass that who might not pass on grades. Right. But I think it's worth asking the question for sure. I, I don't have a great answer, yeah. but my sense would be, if you then dug a little deeper, yeah. because of the more specialized stuff is more interesting anyway, if this is a person who consistently got poor grades and doesn't have good letters. Right. And I guess the case would probably, where you actually would you know, hang on to that person, would be the, either the personal statement was really something, yeah. or there's one letter that is really glows, yeah. and maybe the other two are like, we don't know. In my case, I had the opposite thing, because I bombed the physics GRE. Mm. It was like I hadn't taken a physics class, basically. Wow. <laughs> I'm so surprised to hear that. I didn't have a physics major as an undergraduate. Right. I was math and music. I hadn't That's taken right. half of the classes. So I literally didn't know what I was doing which was reflected in my test score. I mean, sometimes that's good as a gut check. You're like, you know what? The test is picking something up, you know? <laughs> For sure. And by the way, when I took it after two years of grad school, I got a perfect score on it. So like, ah, okay. it did measure some kind of knowledge of what was going on. Yeah, that's some good validity for the test. Sounds like a lot of stress for you, but. <laughs> well, the, the special test. But what I was going to say is the thing that saved me was I had very good grades and letters that said, yeah, look, this guy is a math major, but he took my quantum class mm -hmm. and crushed it. Like, this is a dude you want in your program, despite the fact that he doesn't know any physics yet. Like, basically, it was letters saying, 
he can learn what you need him to learn. I trust this person to succeed in grad school. Right. In fact, I was filtered out the first round. And certainly at any of the fancy places I applied to, they just wouldn't even touch mm. me for precisely this GRE reason, as well as not having the physics classes, I'm sure. But I eventually got in at UCSD. They basically were like, okay, well, the GRE, we don't need that to be our first round filter. Yeah. We can be, you know, slightly more fine-grained. Yeah. yeah. So I was the beneficiary of the opposite. Right, right, right. When I'm doing master's students, it's a little bit different, but it's a similar kind of thing where basically our job, this is how it was explained to me, I've been doing it for about four years, our job is to find the students who are most likely to succeed in the program. And right. currently, as now that data science has been around for a while and that data science undergraduate degrees are common, the obvious, quote, choice of people who would succeed in a master's program in data science are people who've taken data science courses and done well. But... Until very recently, and in many parts of the world, and in a lot of schools in the U.S., there are no data science programs. And so you're, we're encouraged yeah. to look for, have they taken math? Have they taken programming? Have they taken statistics, research design, blah, blah, blah. But for me, what I think I get hung up on is what about the students who've never done any of that, but would be awesome? Right. And in your case, you had that letter. And I don't know what that looks like for a lot of our students, because... Yes. The field is becoming one where you're expected to, like, I would love to have a master's program where people who've never coded before can go. But it's like, you can't get in anymore unless you already know data science. That's right. And, you know, you have a limited amount of time. This is something that yeah. when we were picking grad students in the UK, that program's three years to get a PhD. It's like, sure, you want the really smart person who's never taken physics, but in the UK specifically, mm. that's going to be a disaster. Because yeah. they're going to spend a year or two catching up. Yeah. You know, so I would have flamed out in that system. I took six years to get my degree because I could take a year or two just learning basic physics, you know? Yeah. There's a lot to be said for what you just said, which is in this program, in yeah. this environment, will this person work? And if it's someone who's never coded anything, you know, they need to learn that first and then go to that thing, unfortunately. Right. Right. And we do do things like look for, you know, have they learned it since? Have they done it at work? But it's really tricky. Yeah. I mean, there are people who are like, I've wanted to do this. Obviously, I'm 40 years old. There was no data science when I was in college. I've taught myself Python on YouTube and GitHub, and I find that to be scrappy and impressive. But, you know, <laughs> and so I'll forward them on to the next round of reviews, but I doubt those people make it all the way in. Right. So it, from a diversity perspective, it's sort of like, are we just going to pick the same people? The other thing that really stands out to me in doing these from day one through now is that, and it's PhD as well, it's so competitive. Yep. And there's so many excellent students. And this is so trite because you get it when you get the rejection letters. We had a lot of great candidates. We had to turn down a lot of great candidates. Literally by the end, when we're looking through these things, you're just looking for reasons to not admit someone because you mm -hmm. could easily admit half the population right. of applicants. It's horrible to say, but it is true. Yeah, but it's almost like so many things have to go right in your life in order to get into these programs. Like you have one bad semester, a family member dies. You get pregnant, right? You like, get pregnant, yeah, yeah. you lose your health insurance, you have to work at the same time. You go to a state school because your parents can't send you to whatever. And all those little things just add up. We try not to admit everyone who has straight A's from Princeton, but at the end of the day, hard to justify not admitting everyone who has straight A's from Princeton. Do you know what totally. I mean? Like, yeah. And that's again, where I then go back and say, well, at least we have the letters, we have the personal statement, yada, yada, but it's depressing. <laughs> the whole thing is depressing. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough system, and I think there are no right answers. Yeah. Because without unlimited positions, yeah. you have to throttle. Yeah. And there are good questions about how best to do it. 
But there is no version of the system which doesn't result in a lot of very talented people being shut out. And we're necessarily relying on information shortcuts. And the information we've chosen to collect is going to reward students of a certain profile, straight A's, GRE. And so that's, you know, the question about the GRE, do we keep it, is actually a very deep question about, like, what do we need to know about these people and what could we possibly digest about them to make an informed decision? And is that the thing? Do you do personal interviews? Not for the master's program that I know of. Maybe there's some final round stuff for folks who are up for funding, because most of it's unfunded for master's. And when I did PhD, we didn't get interviewed either. Did you get interviewed? I interviewed when I was on the admissions committee for PhD, but I did not have an interview to get into any grad schools. Yeah. I went out of my way to like travel to a couple of them, places, by the way, I didn't get into, which says a lot about my personality. (laughs) So I did go out of my way to go to a couple of them and say hi to people. But also, I don't know if I made any impression and it wasn't a formal thing. Yeah, I did the like lesser of that where I look up some faculty member at such and such program, email them and say, hi, I'm interested in being a whatever, hello. And they'd write back or not and say something, okay. You know, that was it. Like it did nothing. And I imagine (laughs) now as a faculty member, I'm not on PhD side. Oh, you're just inundated, I'm sure. Seems so annoying. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember writing to people based on like, oh, in their profile, it says they do mathematical physics. And then it's some 80-year-old who hasn't been active in the field in 30 years. And they're like, yeah, I'm basically retired. Sorry. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. I mean, we do a lot where I'll read the personal statements from students. And one thing I do say to my students, and I think this is good advice, is say why you want to go to grad school. What they tend to write is, I want to go to NYU because NYU is great and has these great people. And you're like, we already know we're great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But what will happen is a lot of them will say, I'd like to work with Professor X, Professor Y, Professor Z because, and then they literally will just say whatever was on their bio. Yeah. You know, and so I'm reading (laughs) hundreds of essays and they're all saying the exact same thing about mathematical physics. And you're like, okay, this is not. Yeah. I mean, you don't have much to go on. And not that anyone wants it, but I'm going to give you more free advice if you're thinking of applying to a master's program in data science. Don't begin your essay with, I've loved data science since I was born. <laughs> it's such a cliche, yeah. <laughs> or data is the new oil. I never want to read a sentence that says those things ever again. It's terrible. <laughs> but it, yeah. no, no one teaches these students. The other broad concern, and I'm curious what you both think about this, is the kind of arms race around grad school in the first place. And my undergrad students, so I teach all undergrads, even in my career of teaching, and I've shifted fields and I've shifted universities, so it's not a fair comparison, but the need to go to grad school, the assumption that grad school is what one will do, and the like paranoia from day one of college of if I get a B, I'll never get into grad school. Like grad school is the new college. Yeah. You know, many of us who grow up, you know, with various amounts of privilege grow up expecting to go to college. Mm-hmm. I find that my students expect to go to grad school. And I find that wow. to be very depressing. Yeah. At best. <laughs> I was lucky. So, you know, I went to Williams College, and I may have even talked about this on your Mm -hmm. podcast. By the way, hold on. Let's introduce the show. (laughs) An hour in. Yeah. Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Here we have Leighton Gray. Yo, that's me saying my, like, fifth sentence this episode. (laughs) That other one was Brian Wecht. Hi. Mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Andrea Jonesroy, and I'm so excited to have spoken for an hour and five minutes (laughs) or whatever it's been (laughs) before doing an intro. This is like living a reverse, that Seinfeld episode that goes backwards. (laughs) Anyway, I'm Andrea, and I'm a data science professor, and so we're talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, what I was going to say is Andrea has an incredible podcast called Majoring in Everything that is in month four or five. Four or five. I took kind of a holiday break. It's a great show. I was on the first, right, mm-hmm. episode of that? Yeah, inaugural guest. Wow. So uh, I think people should check that out. But what I was going to say, the reason I mentioned it is because we may have talked about this. At Williams, Williams had a famously amazing math department, like just the best young, fun professors. Everybody loved it. And for years, people would go to Williams, they'd major in math because everyone rules there. And then they'd be like, I love math. I love math. Let's go to grad school for math. Hell yeah, more math. Let's do it. And then they'd show up at grad school and be like, wait a minute. (laughs) No, I don't know anyone here. (laughs) This is really hard. The professors do not care Mm. if I succeed or I fail, which is a broad brush, but Mm -hmm. generally true. The support system I was used to as an undergraduate at a small liberal arts college somehow doesn't exist at this massive state university. Yeah, You know, it's a very different environment. And so by the time I got there, they'd had so many people go to grad school, have the culture shock of going Mm. from tiny liberal arts to enormous research university that I was explicitly told, don't go to grad school. Mm, Don't do it. You don't want to. as a barrier to the people who really, really did. And then once you got to that, like, okay, actually, I'm doing it anyway. I know you tell me it's hard, but I'm going to do it. Then they would talk to you about it. But I think they had a department meeting at some point, which was like, folks, we have to stop sending people to grad school because everybody's failing out. Wow. So I was told early on, don't go to grad school. You, hmm. you really don't want to. It's not Williams. And I did, and I had a great experience, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I was quite on the opposite end of that advice spectrum. And look, I think too many people go to college as it is right now, considering what they want to do. I don't want to restrict a college education from anybody who wants it, but I don't like that the default is I'm just going to go to college. Because yeah. I think in many cases, it's a waste of time and money. A lot of people have a great experience with it. I think a lot more people just use it as an excuse to kind of not do anything for a while. Yes. It would be a lot cooler as a great experience if it did not cost so much fucking money. Mm -hmm. Totally. Just generally. That would be helpful all around, but not like this country's ever going to do anything about that shit. Probably not. At, At this point, it seems like, and Andrew, you probably know more about this than I do, it seems like for many people, it still is economically worth it to go to college although that is probably going to switch over at some point in the relatively near future. Well, and I think it's been switching, which is one of the fuels on the fire of cancel student debt and all of those other things. Right, that's right. We went to college because you told us to, and we took out these huge loans because you told us to, and then the financial crisis hit, and we can't pay our loans, you know, COVID, et cetera, et cetera, and we're all drowning in it. It hasn't translated to the same economic upward mobility or income guarantee that perhaps it once did. And part of that is because of the arms race at the college level. Part of that is jobs and so on, though... Though I personally had a pretty lousy time in college. I felt like it was kind of like a glorified kindergarten. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I thought the whole college party thing, I'm kind of not fun. So I don't know. It wasn't for me. (laughs) Where where did you go? I forget. I went to Connecticut College. Very small school. Same kind of thing. I went then to Michigan for my PhD and it was this massive program. But I was in the PhD program, which was much smaller. And I did observe at the time that if I had been an undergraduate at Michigan 
or a place like NYU, I think I would have gotten very lost in the shuffle. Oh my God, So totally. I hated that Khan was so small at the time. I found it very boring, everyone knew each other. But I did have a very good relationship with many professors yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But I bring all of that up to say that a good friend of mine from grad school, Papia DeBroy, works for an organization based out of DC called Opportunity at Work. And one of the things that they do, or the main thing they do, is try to convince employers to hire people who don't have traditional four-year undergraduate degrees. Great. And the word they use is STARS, which is skilled through alternative routes. And so it's someone who ran a business, who worked for their mm -hmm. family, who mm -hmm. was in the military, blah, blah, blah. And to get companies to say, hey, these people are great assets, and not just for the sort of blue collar where you keep them, but white collar where they're actually like room for advancement. And in the consulting I do, there's no way any of these companies that think of themselves as big shots would ever hire anyone who didn't have a four-year degree. Right. So it's like both required to pay all this money for the four-year degree to get a job, but there's no guarantee you will get that job. So mm -hmm. you're in trouble either way. And then I see my students who understandably panic anytime we try to talk about anything. You started this conversation, Brian, asking, are we talking theory or practical? Yeah. All they want is practical because they just want to get a job. And if the thing I'm teaching in lecture today isn't something they can now list on their resume as a new bullet point, they don't want to hear about it. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I also want people who can think, you know? Yeah. I feel like that's been the mantra of professors since time immemorial is all these students want is to get a, a job. Maybe, yeah. You know? So <laughs> I'm not mean? saying it, it isn't worse now because I don't know, but... Yeah, fair. I remember TAing pre-med classes and pre-engineering classes. It's the same thing. Yeah, like, fair. do I need to know this for the MCAT? And it's like, oh, fuck, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe all of education is just a huge mistake. <laughs> and we should all just get out. Because once you're out in the world, you realize none of that stuff matters. Yeah. Yes, you need to tick these boxes usually to get into whatever program or whatever job. But at some point, that relaxes a bit, right? Or it doesn't. Maybe I'm being naive. As I get older, I feel more like this. A lot of education, especially once you get to grad school, at which point it is required, is essentially letting you build up the confidence to realize that you can just fucking teach yourself no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And when people are really young, it's all the personality of the teacher, right? The teacher yeah. has to be sufficiently nurturing. You hear all the time, oh, I, you know, I hated my math teacher and I'm bad at math yeah. or whatever. And that always happens like junior high, high school kind of yep. age, right? So if you have a nurturing environment early, you build up your confidence. Yes, some people have aptitude, blah, 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 blah. I'm still mad at the sixth grade math teacher who taught me FOIL instead of the distributive property, but we can continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, I harbor petty resentment. My eighth grade geometry teacher, I was like, come on, what are you doing? And then you get to college and you have a little bit more independence, but not actually mm -hmm. that much. There's still like tests and requirements and all this bullshit. And then you get to grad school and maybe you take a year of classes, but at some point someone's like, well, you know, if you don't do it, that just means you don't graduate. Yeah. I still have my job. So <laughs> go learn it, I guess. And then you start thinking about research. So at some point, you know, your entire academic career up to the point where you start doing research has been about building up your self-confidence to the point where you can just go do it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole separate thing, which is the skill of doing research versus the skill of learning a topic that already exists, which is a totally different skill set. Right. And I'm right. not really talking about that at all. Right. People who can teach themselves very effectively might be complete crap at research. Right. Oh, it happens a lot. But to your point, is education a scam? <laughs> I think there's a lot of value in building up this self-confidence to just go do it yourself. Yeah. But I do feel like that younger people, people Layden's age and even younger – 
grew up with this culture of, you know, I'm going to learn Photoshop, go watch a YouTube video on Photoshop, go do the tutorial mm. in Photoshop. I can teach myself anything. When I was growing up, you had to pass through a lot more gates and hoops to get to the point where you could learn things. Now I feel like almost anything you can at least start to teach yourself. Yeah. I had a, a, a neighbor or like a friend's mom growing up sort of adjacent to me. I don't think it was her original quote, but she'd say, if you can read, you can do anything. And at first I dismissed it as this cheesy whatever, but it's pretty much true, right? It's pretty much true. It's pretty good. But I'm so glad you said that because, all right, now we're just going to resolve a teaching, a pedagogical dilemma that I've had, which is that I agree with you, Brian, that getting through grad school and then getting out into the quote real world or whatever is realizing that you have the skills to figure out how to do whatever you want to do. Like, that's kind of it. Yep. And everything I'm teaching in data science, I've pretty much taught myself, except for the statistics stuff, because, like, I programmed in R and I teach in Python. So it's not like I was, like, brand new to programming, but I was like, oh, you want me to teach in Python? Okay. And I just looked it up and now I teach it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of the things I do with my students is... I'm there to teach. It's an intro course. And so 90% of the time I say, here's how you write a string. Here's how you write a list. Here's what you do with it. Blah, blah, blah. Here's the type it out. And the homework yep. is just type it out, you know, but that's it. <laughs> but every now and again, I'll give them questions that I haven't explicitly told them how to code. Or they'll ask a mm -hmm. question in class that says, well, what happens if you use a comma rather than a whatever? And instead of just answering, often I don't know the answer because I don't, I don't memorize this stuff, right? But instead of just answering, I'll say, that's a great question that you could look up. And you can figure out how to go through the Python documentation or Stack Overflow or whatever and actually see, oh, if you do a comma or just try it and see if it works and learn for yourself. And I always think I'm doing them this huge favor. And every time I have all these caveats where I know I'm the teacher, I'm supposed to tell you things, but what I really want you to do is be able to leave this class and keep coding even if you never take another class right. again. Yes. Because you're all going to do projects that are a little bit different. You're going to need this. The speech gets longer and longer every semester. It spans more and more lectures. And every semester, including the most recent one, I get comments on my teaching evaluations, which are a whole other mess, where they say, <laughs> why don't you just tell us the code? What is this? We're in class. I'm not here to look things up. I want to be told what I should be typing. And it's like, I tell you 90%. And I'm deliberately, oh, I'm getting that, that is at a level of, <laughs> why don't you just solve the homework for me? Yeah. Like, come on, folks. There's just like a glut of information and the fact that people will not learn how to parse the information that's available, that's a problem. I mean, you see it throughout, like anything that happens on the internet, people don't actually want to do the research or don't know how they're supposed to do the research. And so they just don't do it and they will rely on whatever the easiest mm -hmm. answer is. And more yeah. commonly, that easiest answer is something that has been pumped out by the algorithm that is not accurate. Right. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing I was thinking about grad school, which is it's not just the self-confidence thing. Here's what I found in physics. It's the soft part of research, which is the intuition, mm. which you learn from experts who will never write this shit down, not mm -hmm. in a million, billion fucking years, but can look at a thing and be like, that feels like a this kind of problem. Yeah. And maybe they're wrong. Oh, yes. Maybe they're right. But- yeah building up that intuition to look at something and have the sixth sense for, you know what? I think we have to do it this way, or at least that would be a good first step. That is the part that you can't really teach yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, but it requires so much repetition that being around the people who have that insight, just because they've done it a billion times, that is 
a part of, I think specifically a PhD experience that you can't really get anywhere else because it just accumulates over time. Like you said, anyone can go fucking learn a new programming language. It doesn't matter. What you can't learn until you've done it is that sense of, oh, I started to think about this and I think it's going to go boop, 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 Mm -hmm. boop, 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 and then we're going to get here and that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, like this is a such and such problem, not a such and such problem, so let's go. Yep. And the minute you say that, everyone's like, I know what you're talking about. I wish there was a word for that. Like, is it like... I think it's just intuition. Yeah, intuition. It's a kind of categorical intuition, which Mm -hmm. is, again, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. Usually when it's wrong, it's wrong in an interesting way. And it's just... Yeah, I've seen it before, bud. I've been down this road. Let's try it like this. In social science, we'll have things where we'll say something like, oh, this strikes me as a prisoner's dilemma problem, or this is an armed bandit problem, or this is whatever. And you can just say that and everyone's like, oh, I see. And it's like a way to circle back to where we started this conversation to instantly reduce the dimensionality of whatever it is that you're working on. You're saying, oh, well, we'll think about it in terms of like these two parameters first. Mm -hmm. And for my entire life since getting my PhD, I have tried to get the rest of the world to see how awesome that superpower is and to have it. It's incredible, yeah. And we were talking at the beginning, like N-dimensional and like these other phrases that we like. Like, I would love to be able to go to my parents and say like, well, I think this is like a battle of the sexes problem, which is a phrase that we don't really use anymore. But like, Mm -hmm. and have them know what that means. Yep, totally. And we don't. Whereas, yeah, everyone just wants to learn how to code. Oh, can I tell you something that made me really mad? Sure. A student came up to me yesterday. It's it's, it's only the third or fourth lecture, and we're doing a lot of sort of big think, like what is language, language as a complex adaptive system, measurement of language, context, da, da, da. And it's going to get us to some more technical stuff. But he came up to me and he said, so are we going to start actual NLP today? Meaning like, (laughs) are we going to actually, you know, turn some words into numbers? And I gave this like really mean answer where I was like, well, actually, I think this whole class is NLP. So yes, we will. But like the fact that we were doing some thinking or talking about Eliza or talking about whatever was like not good enough because we weren't specifically hammering with the code. Oh my God. So it's like the parts that are the most valuable people think of as easy. I had my own experience with that at a party semi-recently when I introduced myself as part of my band. And they were like, oh, Ninja Sex Party, that's great. Do you help write the music? (sighs) And I was like, "Uh, no. I write the music. Yeah. (laughs) What did you think? There was one person do it. Like, it's that feeling of like, wait, what do you think is happening here? This doesn't seem like NLP to you. This is the fucking foundation there, dude. This is it. Yeah. Like, I'm talking about Alan Turing. You don't think that's NLP? Go to hell. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say that, but yeah. Okay, great. Let's go through these next parts then. So our first segment on the show is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to recommend a book, a movie, a video game, some music, whatever it is. Could even be an academic paper. Doesn't matter. Something you're into recently. The title of this segment is What's Poppin'. It has a very lovely theme song, which we always put in in post, which goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? And that's the What's Poppin' theme song. Andrea, do you want to go first? What's poppin'? Sure. What's poppin'? So I recently started watching The Expanse, which has been around forever. Oh, yeah. Do you watch it? Do you know it? I also semi, about a year ago, I started watching it. And I'm slowly working my way through it. So I'm on like the beginning of season three right now. Okay. How long has it been on? 
I think it's, it's like six years. Six, isn't it? Yeah, it's like six seasons on and off, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. been a while. I'm about two thirds through season one, and my boyfriend and I were just in the mood to watch stuff about space. And so I'm not particularly moved by it, but I like the idea. It's set in a time when humans live on Mars and in like various other ships. And so it's just sort of cool to imagine what the future is like where we live on multiple planets and what comes from that. Yeah. It's been like kind of just fun to watch. I, I don't particularly feel enthralled by the story, but it's like visually and kind of philosophically interesting. But there's another reason I want to mention it, which is that in episode like two or three, there's one area where they're all on this ship in like an asteroid belt and it's kind of like the more impoverished area. Mm -hmm. And the main character who's this like gruff hero is walking down trying to get to somewhere important. And all these people are out, it's sort of like a marketplace. And this kind of scrawny guy comes up to him and says, hey man, do you want to check out a comedy show? It's right around the corner. And the guy's like, get out of my way. And I just, we had to stop because I was laughing so hard. My boyfriend and I were laughing so hard because I do comedy and we have to do barking, which is literally yeah. you stand and say, hey, do you want to check out a comedy? I literally still do that. And it's horrible. And I just love the idea of humans living across the solar system and we have spaceships and we have fake air and we have all this other stuff, but we still have barking. Yeah. And people still hate it. <laughs> so yeah. that's my main reason I'm referencing in The Expanse. It's literally you only have to get to like episode three and then do whatever you want. The lowest that. tier in the Belters social Belters, ladder yeah. is the comedy barker. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like you live in space. Surely there is like there's a better way to do this than stand there and bother passersby. Right. But no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's they amazing. still do comedy shows on series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In my experience with that show, slow first season, then it goes wild. Okay. All right. I also found the first season a bit of a slog, yeah. but it starts to get really interesting and cool as you go. It also did that thing that so many series do where I watch one episode and I'm like, this is so dimly lit and yeah. I can't tell anybody <laughs> apart. Yeah. Who are these people? And they're all kind of dressed in future-y stuff. So the unisuits with the helmets. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of people wearing helmets and it's like, is that the guy who did Wait, okay, yeah. I get, yeah. I had a hard time telling anyone apart, yeah. And I will say that this is a problem I have never had with another show where they do the establishment shot where normally in a show it would be like the hospital and then the house and then the whatever. Yeah. But they'll just do the establishing shot of like the ship that they're on. And so I'm finding that I have to keep track of what these various, you know, fake ships look like. Yep. And I'll be like, oh, is that the one that blew up? And then they went to the, okay, like, I have no idea where anything is. So it's really Where tough. are we in space right now? yeah. But interesting enough. So if you're looking to get through some long winter nights, yeah. <laughs> get involved in the expanse. Yeah. Cool. Brian, what's popping? What's popping for me is also a TV series. It's on Apple TV Plus. It's The Shrink Next Door. Do you know what this is? I've watched one episode of no. it. No. Yes. It is based on a true story. Uh, where a psychiatrist, psychologist, I forget exactly what it is, played by Paul Rudd, has a patient played by Will Ferrell. And essentially, this psychiatrist, God, what was his name? Ike something, commits a series of wildly unethical psychiatric maneuvers and kind of worms his way into Will Ferrell's life. It moves forward pretty fast in time as it goes on, but the first few episodes are New York Jews in the 80s, which is my bread and butter. Like, I grew up <laughs> with all these people. So just watching all these fun Jewish people in New York in the eighties. I just saw all my uncles and oh, cool. all my family members. I, uh, I just, I loved it. It's kind of a dramedy. Like there's some funny parts, 
Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell can't help but be amazing. Catherine Hahn is in it, who's mm. always great. Casey Wilson, who I love. A lot of really great performances from all sorts of fun folks. So I think it's worth watching. And there's some fun 80s New York stuff going on too. But it goes up essentially through the present day. Very cool. I have had that on my list. As I said, I watched one episode of it. And I stopped only because I'm in therapy and felt like it was making me paranoid that my therapist was like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, maybe when I like kind of get through with this, <laughs> I can watch. But maybe that's also not as much of the show because it's obvious from the beginning that he's being a bit squirrely with Will Ferrell. It gets a lot more obvious. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. Is it just like a reverse what about Bob situation? Yeah, I guess that's kind of fair. And apparently it's based on a popular podcast, which I've never heard, but Rachel hmm. had. So uh, you could also just listen to the podcast. All right. Cool. Well, what's popping for me is another Apple TV Plus show, except mm. I don't have Apple TV Plus, <laughs> so I just watch the clips of it that end up on YouTube. <laughs> nice. So what's popping for me is the problem with Jon Stewart and the accompanying podcast, because he has a show on Apple Plus TV now, and it's really good. Oh, great. It's 2022 Jon Stewart. And he has a really like cool, fun, like very full of women staff and just every clip that ends up on their channel is really great. And I would love to actually watch the show, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to pay for Apple TV Plus. So sorry, John, I love you. Um, well, Leighton, all you need to do is buy an iPhone and you get three months free of Apple TV Plus or whatever the deal is. So Oh, three whole months? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a steal. The Apple TV Plus, there's some really good shows on it. I have very much enjoyed it. Ted Lasso is great, mm -hmm. specifically season one. Shrink Next Door is great. I haven't watched Mythic Quest yet, but I want to. That's the Rob McElhinney show, right? I know. Where Rob McElhinney is a game developer. That's the one. Uh, yeah, sounds like a show I would love. <laughs> they Fraggle Rock on it, which we're very excited to show Audrey. The new Fraggle Rock, which is supposedly good. You're extremely not pitching me on Apple Plus, but <laughs> you know, whatever. I'll go simp. Sorry, let me pitch you on Apple Plus. It's got a bunch of true crime stuff that takes place in the 80s and is low-res VHS. <sighs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll continue to simp at Jon Stewart yeah. on YouTube. So that's what's popping for me. Great. I gotta watch that. And the podcast that they do is also on like Spotify or wherever you're listening to this current podcast, you can probably also find Jon Stewart being funny. I love Jon Stewart. I love The Daily Show. I have to say, I found some of the stuff that he did when he would revert back to, oh, I'm just a comedian yeah, kind of stuff, a little bit disingenuous. But in general, I loved his era on The Daily Show and do like him a lot. Got a little fed up with him a few years back. Yeah, I know what you mean about that, where it's like you don't get to not have responsibility for things that you're saying and doing and conversations that you're a part of by saying you're a comedian. Any more than fucking Rogan or anyone else yeah. does. It's more of a problem now than it was back then. Yeah, like, oh, I'm an entertainer, therefore I'm not accountable for what I'm saying. Yeah, sorry if my facts are just too fun for you. But, yeah, you know. and I mean, there's a whole other conversation, we don't have to get into it, but the whole like this idea that because I'm doing stand-up comedy at the edges... I can say whatever I want, and it's everyone else's fault if they're mad about it. Oh, my God. It's like freedom of speech or whatever. It's like there's still consequences for what you say. We're not just these people with superpowers who can, you know, cause yeah. harm with no consequence. So, Do you ever listen to Good One, Andrea, the podcast? 
good one. I don't think so. It's a vulture comedy podcast hosted by Jesse David Fox. Yeah, I love it. It's really great. They just go in depth with comedians about jokes. Oh, cool. Or bits or whatever they do. And he has talked a lot about the rise of, quote, anti-woke yes. comedy. Yes. Which is such an interesting thing. And you can hear his and everybody's frustration with it. Yeah. Where it's just like, come on, guys, you know, do you believe this? Do you just find an audience? You're responsible for what you're saying. You can't just be like, you know, sorry if you disagree with me, bro. You know, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's all thing. Anyway. Yes. Yes. All right. That's what was popping. And now we're at our final segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons, where we each say three good, cool things. And those are peaches. And we just say one thing that is a minor bummer or annoyance or what have you. And the theme song goes right here. That was our super sexy theme song for Peaches and Lemons. Stunning. I really liked it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we're going to do lemons first. I'm just going to say my obvious lemon, which is that I was completely fucking fine before I sit at my desk to record this episode. And then all of a sudden, I just have like the worst sinus headache I've had in months. And now I'm literally holding a roll of paper towels because that is what <laughs> is required. Mm. So that's my lemon. But, I mean, thank you for being here, despite not feeling well. Yes, thank you. Oh, no, it's fine. You always have the option of saying, I don't feel well, and I can't make it today, so I appreciate you. Oh, no, this is good. You two click really well and have a lot of very smart things to say about things that I don't know a lot about. So, (laughs) you know, it worked out. Well, Leighton, I was thinking about how the last time I was here, you had a hangover, maybe? Or you were sick. And so I just feel I'm like, oh no, I cause Leighton to be sick, is, <laughs> is how my scientific reasoning has led me to the conclusion. That's a perfect correlation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea of me being hungover is a very funny concept because that's not generally a thing that happens. But uh, one day we'll get you on here when I'm not <laughs> in some way incapacitated. No, I mean, maybe you were just sick. I, I forget. Or maybe you've been up late or I, I forget. Either way, the point is it's all my fault and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can do my lemon first. It's very simple. It's very fast. For a doctor's appointment, they wanted me to take a COVID test first. So I had to go get that earlier through the healthcare system I'm a part of. And I had to fucking drive 45 minutes each way to do a self-administered COVID test. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I understand why they want me to do it, but it's just the nearest they could get me is Thousand Oaks which is not close to where I live. It's like basically halfway between LA and Santa Barbara. Yeah. And first of all, where are the oaks? That's my number one question. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I should see more oaks. But also, it was just a no. I was like, why am I fucking doing this? And remember this when today? we thought COVID would be good for climate change? Not anymore. Yeah. Now we're driving all over the country for tests. I know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my lemon. Those are some lemons. All right. I promised you that I wouldn't talk about vegan cheese again, but I will because okay. I have a new, I have a lemon, which is my beloved vegan cheese company, Dr. Cow Vegan Nut Cheese, yeah. that I talked about as a peach last time yes. and keep talking about to you, is going out of business. No. No. Oh, no. I don't know for sure if it's just they're closing their Williamsburg storefront in New York mm-hmm. City and they're still going to be online. And we cannot get a straight answer on their Instagram account. And I'm Uh-oh. too afraid to call and have them tell me it's going away forever. But like <laughs> February 10th is the last day. And I'm so upset about it that I don't even know if I should order a ton of vegan cheese and keep it forever. It doesn't keep that well, but like keep it forever (laughs) and enjoy it. Or it's Uh so sad. The idea of eating this cheese for the last time makes me so sad 
that I almost want to not even have it again. It's like I already said goodbye, even though I didn't. Uh-huh. And I'm really upset. So that's my lemon. Yeah. I would say stock up on the nut cheese. Okay. We're all dying. You know, <laughs> eat that nut cheese. All right. <laughs> I'm going to write down that quote. That's good. We're all dying. Eat that nut cheese. <laughs> Perfect. It's the kind of wisdom I like to dispense on this It's a new catchphrase. Podcast. It's Peach's time. I'm going to rip through mine because the more I talk, the more the snot wants to leave my skull. So I'm going to... First one, I found my old portfolio for applying to art school from high school, and I hadn't looked at it since I submitted it. And I was like, damn, I've come a long way. And that was kind of neat to see where my head was at then and where it is now. My second peach is that I've been really stuck on a certain work thing that I've been like sort of procrastinating on. And then after my sleeping pills hit last night, I just sat down with a legal pad and like all the ideas came to me. So oh, nice. big ups to my sleeping meds um, <laughs> for giving me a burst of inspiration, I guess. And then my final peach is that our good friend Susie gave me one of her Psychic Circle Y incision sweaters, which... Mm. Those are cool. Yeah, it's this. So it's like an Ooh. autopsy, like chest cavity. It's like the most comfortable thing in the world. And I just like wearing my my friend's clothes. So nice. that's peaches that's for me. I love it. I got some peaches for you. Those are good ones. One peach is I recently got, I don't know if you can see them here. I haven't cleaned it up very well, but I got a, a pour over coffee thing. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay, yes. I wasn't much of a coffee person and I was reluctant because it's like a whole ritual and it takes forever. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And my boyfriend doesn't drink hot coffee, so it's just me. And so I almost didn't do it and I had it forever and then I didn't use them. Anyway, now I do it and it takes like 20 minutes. I'm not a morning person, but I really have come to like enjoy the whole 20 minutes of hand pouring this thing with the fancy kettle and I grind the beans and all this stuff. And so it's been very, very nice. So that's one peach. Another peach is I finally, after really not doing it during the pandemic and even for a while leading up to it, I'm finally doing aerial circus training again. Oh, did you post a video recently? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm wearing long sleeves. I have some gnarly lira burn <laughs> on my arms that I'm very proud of right now. I went to the doctor today and they were like, are you okay? I mean, it wasn't for that, but they were just like, we're really hung up on the bruises on your arms. But <laughs> <laughs> it was like, good, it's good you are, but I'm fine. But I finally am going back to that. And that was something that That's I'm sure awesome. I talked about this the last time I was here was a really big part of keeping me sane in grad school and was actually a source of some barely existent self-confidence. So it's just been very fun to go back and like use my body in that way and have that time when I'm not thinking about data science and all my problems. So that's a peach. (laughs) And then my third peach is my parents have a dog, a new-ish dog, pandemic puppy. Her name is Zoe, and I'm obsessed with her, and I forgot how wonderful dogs are. Like, I remember how sad I was when my dogs died, and I kind of hung on to that. But now when I visit my parents, I play with Zoe, and I, like, weep when I leave her, and she's awesome. So, So Zoe is peach number three. What kind of dog is Zoe? So something of a breeder problem, but a double doodle. So half golden doodle, half labradoodle. And (laughs) my mom was like, I don't want to vacuum ever again. So we're getting one of these (laughs) so we don't have to vacuum. But Zoe is so on my mind that when I was at the doctor today, the doctor said, did you ever call Zoe? And I was like, why would I call a dog? But she meant a doctor, (laughs) a doctor named Zoe. (laughs) That's how burned in, but she's very cute. I'm happy to send pictures if you want to see them. Please do. I'd love to see this doodled up dog. She's so cute. Yeah. (laughs) Fully doodled. Fully doodled. Yeah. Brian, what are your peaches? My peaches. Peach number one is my seven-year-old lost another tooth. 
one of the front ones. And we have a little tradition, which is for Tooth Fairy, when she loses a tooth, I read her a little puzzle she can solve. And she's been really into, you know, the grid logic puzzles. And so I wrote her one about all the kids on her second grade class, each lost a tooth one day of the week, and they each got X amount of money for it. So figure out who lost a tooth when and how much money the tooth fairy gave them. And she woke up and saw this little puzzle and I arranged it so that there was an envelope saying, do not open until the end of the puzzle. And then the amount of money she solved for herself getting in the puzzle is what she got. That's so cute. Yeah. She loved it. She's really into these like different logic puzzles now, which is really fun to watch. You know, you get to watch her brain like go and she's thinking about stuff and it's just really fun to watch someone just starting on their kind of, you know, thinking journey like that. Cause I love this stuff as a kid too. And it's really fun to watch her process. That's very cool. Yeah. That's the most compelling case I've ever heard for having children. Most people are like, love. <laughs> and I'm like, uh. but this, I was like, that would be cool. <laughs> Fuck that. You can watch a brain starting to yeah. kick off. That's the interesting yeah. one. Peach number two is Rachel painted the entire inside of our house and she just crushed it. Like, it looks amazing. She just kind of took on this project herself. She said she wanted to do it and she did a really, really great job. She did injure herself in the process, Layton, as you saw. She got a big black eye. She like fell and hit a wall. It was alarming. Yeah, it was scary at the time. And it's totally fine. You can go on our Instagram if you want to see it at its various stages of grossness. But apart from that injury, which was luckily not a major one, just looks bad. It's awesome to have a freshly painted house. And she she did a really great job with it. And my final peach. Okay, look, I wasn't going to do two Audrey ones, but I guess I am, so I can't think of anything else. Here's another reason to have kids, which is more (laughs) like the first thing you said, which is for whatever reason, since the end of winter break, every morning, one of us, either me or Rachel, has been getting up early and just kind of sneaking into bed with Audrey and giving her some like morning snuggles before we all get up. And it is like the best thing in my life, to be honest, (laughs) to, to just get a few minutes with this sleepy, warm kid. And she loves it. It's her favorite thing. Just getting extra parent time. Sometimes Rachel and I will tag out and she's seven. This isn't going to last that much longer. (laughs) She's a few years away from not wanting to go anywhere near us forever, but just having a few moments, you know, with my quiet sleeping kid every morning is so great. Wow. And then she never wants to get out of bed, which is the other thing. So I'll be like, okay, honey, let's get up. No, more, more cuddles. No, more, 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 more. (laughs) And then you go to the stage of the morning where she's mad, which is always fun. Of course. Because she's cold and doesn't want to be awake. Been there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, high five for that. Not to overshare, but my parents never did that. I got to think about this. Mine didn't either. Although I don't know if I would remember at that age, but. Yeah, fair. No, I'm pretty sure mine didn't either. Okay. But I, Audrey loves it and Rachel and I love it. It's wonderful. (laughs) So it's just a fun way to, you know, to start our morning. And and now we have a little fireplace. So one of us will start the fire first and then go in and cuddle with the kid. And then we'll all read books together in the morning. And it's a nice morning. Wow. Your mornings sound incredible. Here I am excited that I'm pouring hot water on some beans. This is (laughs) (laughs) like being really wholesome. You have fireplaces and everything else. Wow. Listen, I'm in the hot bean water camp. I wake up and I'm like, oh boy, I get to put a hot cocoa packet in my coffee today. Ooh, (laughs) now we're cooking. Yes. Honestly, if you gave Audrey the choice between hot cocoa and cuddles with a parent, she would pick hot cocoa. So I think you win. 
Wait. Yeah. Got him. Also, yeah, there is a small dog involved in my situation. So, got him. All right. Well, that is the end, end of our show. Where can people find you online? Are there things that you would like to plug? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So they can find me online at Jonesroy, J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y, on all the things and jonesroy.com. And in addition to my podcast, Majoring in Everything, which is on all the places and YouTube, I have a show coming up on March 1st at a theater called Caveat in New York City. And it's also live streaming from there at the same time. You know how live streams work. Uh, And it's called The Data Science Spectacular. And I am hereby claiming that it is the best one-person comedy and circus-accented show about data science in the world. Wow. A bold claim. Yes, that's my claim. Yeah, we'll see if I live up to it. You can come and learn what the heck is going on in data science in a way that hopefully doesn't suck. So that's what's going on March 1st. Great. And they can find that on your website. On my website and caveat.nyc for tickets. But I'll talk about it on all the social medias and everywhere else, too. Great. Lovely. So thanks. All right. Well... That's our show, folks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Look, if you want to apply to the master's program in data science (laughs) at NYU, (laughs) I'm also happy to talk to you about that. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, how about you close this one out? Okay. So now I have to I have to say my uh, catchphrase, which as always is uh, keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. You got to do better than that. Well, come on. That was Casey Kasem. <laughs> Wasn't that Casey Kasem's catchphrase? Yeah. This is Casey Kasem saying, keep your feet on the ground, but keep reaching for the stars. What do you want, Leighton? You tell me what you want. Do you want me to do one of your usual catchphrases? No, no. I need you to come up with something completely original out of whole cloth at this moment that I'm springing on you now at the end of the show. Okay. This is Brian Wecht saying, insurance is usually worth it. So bet on yourself and get a good policy. That's the end of the podcast. Great. That was awesome. <laughs> Amazing. All state is in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at Leighton at gmail.com. <laughs>